Welcome to the third and final episode in our three-part On the Case series on recent retail and leisure restructuring cases. Once again, I'm joined by Julie Gatenio, partner at CMS, this time to look at the High Court decision in respect of the Regis Hairdressing Group CVA, and to bring all the threads together with her thoughts on where landlords and tenants stand after New Look, Virgin, Active and Regis. Welcome back, Julie. Morning, Jess. So the circumstances in Regis were a little different than New Look, which was heard uh, by the same judge um, at, the, at the same time, effectively back to back, in that the CVA had terminated. Um, so can you talk us through the parties in this challenge and, and what happened with the Regis group and, and what ultimately was left in dispute between the parties? Yes, so in Regis, the claim obviously challenging the CVA was originally brought against both the company and against the nominees. Um, an order was being sought against the nominees to repay their fees on the basis that they'd acted in breach of duty. But as you said, the company subsequently went into administration and as a result, the, the CVA automatically terminated. And um, on that basis, the arguments about revocation of the CVA were, were um, argued were redundant. So uh, the nominees sought to strike out the claim on the basis that the court couldn't revoke a CVA which had terminated. Um, that application was unsuccessful with the court finding that it was possible to revoke a CVA where there was still some utility to doing so, notwithstanding the termination. And here, although the CVA releases were deemed never to have happened, there was a carve out for the modifications to the leases um, and the liability of the nominees also remained an open question. So a number of subsequent steps were taken following that unsuccessful strikeout application. Um, for example, uh, the administrators uh, said that um, the landlords could claim in the administration on the basis of their full contractual rights. So revocation of the CVA wasn't needed to address the carve out. Um, so by the time the matter actually went uh, went to trial, the issues which remained in dispute were largely in relation to the claim against the nominees, mm -hmm. where revocation of the CVA was uh, required to um, to to um, make an order to repay their fees, and it, there were there was also an argument about whether or not they could rely on various indemnities against personal liability that were within uh, that were within the, the CVA. And also to determine what cost claim the landlord group, which the cost they'd incurred prior to the administration, um, what, what cost could be claimed against the company. Now, ultimately, the judge considered there was a theoretical need to determine whether the CBA should be revoked to determine the nominee's liability to repay fees mm. and to determine the cost claim against the company. But the reality in relation to the claim against the company is it would be an unsecured claim and there would be no likelihood of dividend. So there was really um, the, the really the, the only point of utility was around repayment of the nominee's fees. So the landlord group had openly admitted it wanted to pursue the claim to obtain the court's ruling on a number of issues regarding CVAs. But again, this was more or less redundant because of the new look uh, challenge. So the lack of utility to the proceedings was a factor the court said was highly relevant in considering um, whether to make findings of wrongdoing against persons who weren't before the court once the CVA 
was terminated as a result of the administration, the company no longer took part. So there were no witnesses from the company at the trial. Mm. So in essence, this claim was looking at the conduct of the nominees in its role in recommending the proposal to creditors, having regard in particular to the company's antecedent transactions prior to the CVA, as well as on grounds of unfair prejudice and material irregularity based on things like inadequate disclosure of the antecedent transactions, inadequacies in the statement of affairs and estimated outcome statement, and in particular, as we'll see in a moment, the preferential treatment um, in relation to Regis Corporation and International Beauty Limited. But there were other a couple of other points which were different than new look in the blanket 75% discount calculation to landlords claim for voting purposes and modification to the leases, many of which were raised in New Look and the New Look judgment applies equally here, but there were a couple of of, of, uh, additional factors that were considered here. Okay, so how did Mr Justice Zaccaroli approach those key issues and, and what led to him ultimately ordering revocation of the CVA? So the key issue and the one on which the judge found in favour of the landlord group was the preferential treatment of International Beauty Limited, um, which um, that that company had wrongly been treated as a critical creditor in the uh, CVA, despite the fact uh, IBL was the company's sole member. So the treatment of IBL as a critical creditor seriously prejudiced all other compromised creditors uh, in circumstances where IBL would receive payment of its debt in full under the CVA, where only half the sum that was being paid to IBL was available for claims of all the other impaired creditors. Now, that payment to IBL was only possible because the other unsecured creditors were getting a fraction of what they were owed and would only be getting a a reduced uh, future rent. So it was held by the court that that was unfairly prejudicial to the landlord creditors, and that was the basis on which the CVA was revoked. There was argument about the treatment of Regis Corporation uh, also being um, wrongly treated as a as a a critical creditor. But on the evidence, the the judge didn't didn't um, didn't find that the there had been unfair prejudice in relation to the treatment of Regis Corporation. So obviously slightly different facts in relation to how they had been dealt with. On the other key points, um, I think it's important to to um, stress again, and this has been um, said in in a number of cases, that a material irregularity will only arise if the irregularity would affect the voting outcome. So here, the judge didn't accept that the inadequate disclosure of the antecedent transactions were a material irregularity because he found it was unlikely that the creditors would have assessed the CVA differently and would have voted differently, even if they'd been disclosed. There were also challenges, as I mentioned, uh, in relation to inadequacies and inaccuracies to the statement of affairs and the estimated outcome statement. Now, where it involves serious allegations against the company and its directors who weren't participating in the proceedings, um, the judge said there was no utility to determining their position, and he declined to make findings on the allegations, um, given that they weren't there to be um, cross-examined and and, um, tested. But he did find that potential claims um, based on antecedent transactions 
was unlikely. So potential claims being things like a transaction at an undervalued, transactions to default, things like that, um, that those those um, claims that might have arisen if the company had been placed in liquidation were unlikely, and the way that they were referred to in the estimated outcome statement wasn't a, a material irregularity. The court also found that it was reasonable for the company to have identified a shutdown administration as the likely alternative if the CVA wasn't approved at the time the proposal was made. So the court wouldn't have regard to events which subsequently occurred and the um, future administration and what had happened in the um, subsequent administration. It was just a question of what was appropriate, what was the likely alternative at the time that the CVA was proposed. Uh, the judgment in New Look um, equally applies, as I said, to the issues, the same issues that arose in Regis. But there were a couple of different points. Um, one was whether the 75% discount which had been applied to landlords' claims in respect to future rent for voting purposes was justified. And here the court did distinguish Regis from New Look. The claims of all landlords across all categories were calculated according to the same formula and with the 75% discount. Whereas in New Look, um, the judge had found that the discount, a discount of 25% was justified. The claim there, each landlord had been, of, of each landlord had been estimated by reference to circumstances of the particular lease. And they court found there that that was a reasonable method of estimating a minimum value for voting purposes. Here, the discount in Regis was also much larger than in New Look. Um, it was 75%. And the judge said there had to be some adequate justification for this. The only justification which Regis had offered, or the nominees had offered in relation to that discount, um, the 75% discount, was that that had been applied in most retail CVAs since 2011. So, uh, I think we can safely say that the 75% discount now has largely fallen by the wayside. And um, in recent CVAs, the discount had already really been um, usually around the sort of 20, 25% level um, and not higher. So I think that challenge, notwithstanding it's only recently had a judgment, had, had already taken effect. So I don't think we're going to see any CVAs with a 75% discount applied mm. in, in future. So finally, on the um, other challenges raised on, on modifications to the leases in Regis, um, termination rights, one of the arguments was that termination rights, which had to be um, exercised within 90 days of the effective date were insufficient, were an insufficient quid pro quo for the modifications um, but the court said, no, that didn't amount to unfair prejudice. Um, however, the fact that um, the CVA provided that a landlord who held multiple leases in categories two to five could only exercise a right of termination in respect of one lease if it exercised it in respect of all um, leases, that had been modified after the CVA. So it wasn't an issue here really. Um, and the challenge on that didn't succeed. But I think the important point to note is that the court did comment that a provision which required a landlord to terminate all leases rather than one by one would be unfairly prejudicial. Um, 
While the court agreed that the supposed benefit from a profit share fund in the Regis CVA was illusory, um, it wasn't necessarily unfairly prejudicial, but it was something for the court to weigh in the balance when considering differential treatment of creditors in a CVA. It wasn't necessary for the judge to um, determine it here. The judge had already found unfair prejudice. Uh, but here in, in the relation to the profit share fund, on the company's own evidence, it was clear that during the period of that fund, the company didn't even expect itself to, to be in profit. So that's why it was considered to be illusory. Um, turning then to the, um, I suppose, what were really the key questions because of the, um, the, the claim against the nominees on, on breach of the duties, um, just because the court found that there was unfair prejudice or material irregularity um, didn't mean automatically mean that the nominees had failed in their duties. Um, there would only be a claim against the nominees if they fell below uh, the required standard in recommending the proposal be put to a meeting of creditors uh, in circumstances where including IBL as a critical creditor was unfairly prejudicial to the applicants. And the court found that in that one respect, the nominee's conduct had fallen below the required standard and uh, that a reasonable nominee ought to have questioned the position with IBL before accepting without question that the shareholder was properly to be treated as a, credit, as a critical creditor. Now, the court didn't rule out the possibility of requiring nominees to repay fees in cases of particularly egregious conduct, but in this case found it wasn't appropriate in the absence of fraud or bad faith to deprive them of their fees, where he found that a claim of professional negligence would have failed and on that basis it wasn't appropriate to deprive them of their fees. So before we uh, try and assess the, the significance of this decision um, as against all the others that we, we've talked about previously, it is pretty unusual for a CVA to be revoked by the court, isn't it? Yes, I think the the number of cases we've seen where the court has revoked a CVA is pretty pretty small, and clearly the bar for for successfully challenging a CVA is high. But in reality, I don't think we can say that means getting a CVA revoked is unlikely, because as I keep I probably repeatedly say, it always depends on the facts of the mm. case, and I think Regis and New Look amply demonstrate that. Um, but also. Um, notwithstanding landlord sentiment about the abuse of CVAs, in reality, the number of challenges made is relatively limited compared with the number of CVAs which haven't been challenged. Mm. So um, I suppose it's a, a bit of a numbers game, but it will will very much depend on the um, facts of the case. Um, so with that in mind, do you, do you think uh, this Regis decision offers much by way of a ray of hope for landlords or in the light of the same judges uh, much more comprehensive um, decision in New Look. Is is this revocation of the Regis CBA really something that comes down to this sort of specific and quite unusual set of circumstances? Yes, I, I think um, that's right, that it will always be down to the specific facts and the terms of the particular CVA. And as we see here, it was the treatment in Regis of their of, of IBL, which was a, their sole member as a critical creditor, which was the um, grounds for which the court found that the uh, there was unfair prejudice and revoked the CVA. 
Um, I think as these judgments show and the subject uh, um, and subject to the outcome of the appeal and new look, challenging a CVA is difficult, but it will be down to how the company approaches the restructuring. And if there is egregious conduct, then the court will step in. Now, it's not an ideal position for landlords because it does require a serious commitment to uh, the time and expense and inevitable risk of litigation. So I imagine the sort of the one sort of key takeaway, the key lesson from from Regis will be one for 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 the tenants and those instructing them in terms of how uh, how they treat uh, different types of creditor or, or creditors that are in a similar position to IBL in this case. Yes, and I think there's a whole host of other um, you know considerations for tenants who are restructuring and how they approach that and how they treat different creditors. And, um, you know, there are going to be a number of considerations for them to make sure that they don't uh, um, overstep the mark. I mean, talk about them pushing the envelope. And that has happened over a long period of time. And to some degree that that is, you know, certain certain things they've done have been accepted by the courts. But um, it doesn't mean that tenants don't have to consider carefully how they approach the restructuring. Mm. So we've now gone to, into detail uh, on three major CVA and restructuring challenges um, over these three weeks. Uh, so drawing the threads of our discussion together, how, how do you assess the landscape now for landlords? Well, I think landlords will be undoubtedly smarting from these decisions where the balance seems to be decidedly tipped more in favour of the companies, despite some success in Regis, helpful comments and new look in Virgin and and obviously leave to appeal being granted a new log. Um, Given the legislation on restructuring plans in particular that was pushed through mid-pandemic last year with the clear aim uh, to rescue companies, it's not that surprising. Um, But ultimately, the ability for companies to restructure without real regard, if any in certain cases, to their lease liabilities does have potentially far-reaching implications for example, on in inward investment market, on investing in and repurposing our towns, high streets and communities, which is critically important coming out of the pandemic, on pensions, on local authorities, which are prolific landlords, and, and inevitably on the landlord companies themselves who have their own employees. Now, most landlords, I do think, want to act commercially and fairly, but they don't want to be taken advantage of. And subject to the new look appeal, and other challenges in the pipeline, Uh, I suspect the current landscape means that landlords will want to have a a fundamental rethink about the basis and terms on which they let property. uh, And and, um, I think that's easier said than done, but I think that's something that, um, you know, that that landlords will want to do. Now, I'm no expert, far from it, but it, it seems to me on reading these decisions that if CVAs are very hard to challenge successfully, restructuring plans will be even more difficult. Um, based on how these judges approach the cases, do you think that they will influence um, the route that future tenants and their advisors may opt for if looking to restructure? Yes, I, I do agree. And I think there's three important points I would flag here. Um, the first two points are on voting. Um, One is the likelihood that many companies restructuring post-pandemic will have accrued substantial rent arrears. That's going to significantly enhance landlords' voting power in a CVA, Mm. 
And in many cases, that may mean that landlords can vote down a CVA. So pursuing a CVA is simply not going to be a viable option for the company, as was the case in Virgin Active. Now, there the judge found there was nothing inappropriate about the company choosing a restructuring plan because it couldn't achieve the same outcome in a CVA. So that's irrelevant. Um, so if a CVA just isn't viable on the voting, um, on, the, uh, on the value of votes, then depending on the restructuring, a plan may well be the best option rather than, say, an administration and prepack sale. And like a CVA, it enables a company to write off debt debt and rewrite the lease terms. Secondly, um, where the voting majority will be with the unimpaired creditors, we know from the comments in New Look that where a CVA is voted through by the unimpaired or differentially or differently treated creditors, then um, in the judge's words, there would be strong grounds to conclude unfair prejudice where there's been effectively um, impaired creditors swamped by the votes of the unimpaired. So here, the company may well choose a plan um, and argue either that impaired creditors like landlords are out of the money, so no class meeting is required and they don't need to rely on the cross-class cramdown, or alternatively, um, a call uh, creditors meetings, including the landlord classes, and then rely on the cross-class cramdown. Uh, and thirdly, whilst it's clear that court-led process is very expensive and, and you know, that's evident from um, the, the compressed timetable and the length of the hearings in Virgin, um, now that the use of plans for compromising landlords has been successfully tested by Virgin, then other companies, particularly where the company's debt to secured creditors means landlords are out of the money, may choose a plan even if the company doesn't need to use a cross-class cramdown, primarily to obtain greater certainty, which arguably the court sanction provides. And whilst it might be thought a CVA challenge is less of a risk post new look because there may be less appetite, um, the judgment has dealt with a, a number of cont contentious issues in CVAs in favour of CVAs, but it will always depend on the facts and the landlords have been given leave to appeal. So uncertainty mm. does remain in the context of CVAs. For that reason, even if the companies could use a CVA and even if the upfront costs are more, after Virgin, they may see restructuring plans as providing greater certainty where there's less scope and appetite for an appeal compared with the risk of a CVA challenge. How do you think advice um, to landlords and, in, and indeed insolvent tenants will change as a result of these three decisions? Well, in, in my view, um, the clear advice to landlords is, first of all, the need to act very, very quickly once a plan or a CVA is launched by the company, because detailed analysis needs to be undertaken immediately, given the really compressed time scales, and otherwise their position, whether or not they want to challenge, could be prejudiced. And secondly, to consider collaboration with other landlords, as this will have a myriad of benefits, including um, preparing evidence, sharing costs, resource and risk. So I think from the landlord's perspective, those those are the sort of key key points I'd flag. Um, I think tenants obviously will be able to learn from the uh, issues that um, arose, particularly in Regis, obviously, where mm. the CBA was revoked. 
um, and also various comments that have been made in these judgments, which it's clear in relation to certain approaches the tenants might take that um, could be found to be unfair prejudice or material irregularity and could alter, uh, could, could end up with a CVA being revoked. Um, obviously, in the context of, of plans, yes, I think that would be more difficult. And it, it's, it's really down to key issues such as uh, the relevant alternative, what is the position of creditors, where does the value break? Um, but I think Clearly, the companies need to make need to ensure that they don't do anything in terms of their restructuring, which demonstrates egregious conduct. Because I um, certainly, in my view, the courts have made clear they won't uh, they won't stand for that. And in those cases, um, you know, the plan may not be sanctioned. So you, you mentioned um, the the news that Newlet will be going to appeal. So in the light of the the degree of uncertainty that creates, do you foresee many more of these? challenges reaching court in the next year or so? Well, interestingly, as I understand, there are another three or four challenges in the pipeline at the moment. And if those go to trial, along with new look appeal, then there'll no doubt be, well, a lot more for us to to talk (laughs) about and analyse further. But it will be interesting to see what the outcome based on the facts in those challenges uh, is because that will also, I think, determine how many how many more challenges we mm. might see going forward. Fingers crossed they don't all hand down within a fortnight like uh, <laughs> like like we've had it recently. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> we have to get our heads around in, in such a short time frame. <laughs> so thank you very much, Julie, and congratulations on reaching the end of this trilogy of podcasts. Uh, not many people can talk clearly and informatively about corporate insolvency for an hour and a half, but I'm happy to say you have managed it admirably. Many thanks, Jess. You have been listening to On The Case from EG.